Ni hao, bom dia. Como tal é vos? Eu me pelo Denis. Que passa, Mufasa? Welcome to the Micopreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. And today, we've got two of the pioneers in the psychedelic media and education space at the same place, at the same time. Everybody, please give a warm welcome to Joe Moore and Kyle Bowler, the founders of Psychedelics Today, the planetary hub for individuals, practitioners, and professionals exploring psychedelics. There's much better ways to make a lot of money than going into a psychedelic legalization effort at a state level. Compass and etc. can't play in this game. There's federal laws in place that push them out. So big players, big money players, they're not going to make a killing here. As new people are getting involved, they're in that like honeymoon phase and you go, oh, whoa, like this is amazing. I need to share it with the world. And again, I was there too. And, you know, maybe as you, you, you get involved in it longer, you start becoming a little bit more, I don't know, hesitant towards towards stuff or you know just a little bit more critical thinking as always thank you for listening it's an honor to host this podcast for you and please consider rating reviewing and sharing the podcast wherever you are listening and without further ado let's get the show on the road okay pasa mufasa we've got joe moore and Kyle Bowler of Psychedelics Today, planetary leaders in psychedelic media, storytelling, and education. It's awesome to have both of you at the same place at the same time here on the Micopreneur Podcast today. How are things, fellas? Yeah, thanks for having us here, Dennis. Really excited for it. Yeah, Kyle, you've been on the program before about a year ago, but Joe, this is your first time, so I got to hit you with uh, bing, bong, boom right off the bat. What is it like to carve the slopes of Colorado where you live? And I believe Kyle also is a prolific skier while managing one of the most robust psychedelic media platforms on the planet. Do you find quite the balancing act or, you know, are you very comfortable with that by now? <sighs> I'm getting there. When I, one thing I find amazing about doing it is midweek when I go out. A couple of years ago, every other person I was on the chair with was a doctor. So I got to actually get into medical psychedelic chats five minutes at a time <laughs> with strangers. So it was really, really cool to educate and like get to learn their perspectives on it too. But it's, it's not bad. You know, I, I thankfully live here. So I just walk, walk across town and I'm, I'm good to go. So that's, um, it's a good balance. I love it. Couldn't have it any other way. And are you hitting the slopes too, Kyle? Yeah, I hit the slopes every once in a while when I can get out. I just got out yesterday, but the Hills are like an hour away and they're hills. They're not really mountains. So, uh, yeah, try to make the best of it. I should probably move to a mountain town some somewhat soon so I can get better, uh, better carving. And, and I'm a snowboarder. Um, started skiing, but uh, like when I, when I first started off, but stuck with snowboarding. Word. I go both ways. If there was trivia, skiing and snowboarding. Well, it's an honor to have both of you on the podcast. And there's easily like 420 years of combined psychedelic experience represented here between the two of you and myself. So let's hit the ground running with the question on everyone's mind, which is if you could pick the brain of any psychonaut alive or dead and tune into a psychoactive experience with them, with the molecule of your choice, which psychonaut would it be and why? For me, it would be Timothy Leary with LSD, and because he was the pioneer, <laughs> the pioneer, and went really far. People don't think he thought as deeply as he did, but he was a really serious philosopher, scientist, and thinker. Um, he got loose once in a while, for sure, but 
his contributions haven't even been, you know, we haven't scratched the surface of the value there yet. So that that's my why. I don't know. This is a hard question. I have like three different answers, but I guess I would probably go with uh, Stan Groff. It, I think that'd be really interesting to see what that experience would be like uh, with LSD. And then my, uh, my second answer, the first one that really kind of popped in my head was uh, Ralph Metzner. You know, somebody I really wish we got on the podcast before he passed. And he was just a huge influence um, in my undergrad uh, experience. And I really enjoyed his work um so that would be cool too it'd be fun to probably do psilocybin with him sure i gotta go with john Lilly. i've always been fascinated by that character doing some lsd with his dolphin crew i found out about him back in college i actually used to float in an isolation tank that was gifted to a woman in mill valley by john Lilly, and she had quite the archives of all kinds of interviews she did on tape back in the 80s with all of these psychedelic figures like richard Feynman, john Lilly, terence mckenna and I really cut my teeth on a lot of the OG psychonauts learning that way, the Jonathan Otts of the world and the Timothy Learys and all that. So I've always been fascinated with the eccentric people, right? And I think they fit well into psychedelics, as you both know. So you two have been around for six or seven years now. We're very early adopters of creating a psychedelic media platform a, lot, a long time before all of the current hype and hoopla cycles that have taken the world by storm. So I'd be curious to hear... Is there anything about the course of evolution that psychedelics have taken into mainstream society, into mainstream medicalized models and pop culture that has surprised you going back to when you started until where it is today? Is there anything that's really surprised you or is this pretty much a natural extension of what you imagine would happen when you launched psychedelics today, six or seven years ago? I mean, I'm just really surprised about how quickly it's grown. I think like when Joe and I started, it was like a very niche topic and really still kind of, well, I wouldn't say in the underground, but kind of like, you know, still was pretty quiet. I mean, I, I originally started getting more involved in this space when I did my undergrad in, in 2010. And that really felt like, ooh, I can't really talk about this stuff. Um, so I think the thing that really surprises me is just how fast it's evolved. Um, and then the people that are coming out of the woodwork uh, telling me that they're interested in it like people that would never expect to have an interest have an interest in microdosing all of a sudden um, so that really surprises me and I think that shows like how the narrative is changing and how people are starting to want to explore some of these quote-unquote alternative um, approaches to, to health yeah I'd say likewise I think the biggest surprise is the the really typical middle-class folks that are getting interested and joining the party. And um, I, I would have never expected it to have proliferated in such a, a big way in that, in that section of people. It's, um, it's fascinating. You know, probably half the conversations in American Starbucks now are probably about psychedelics. Now, let's be more realistic, 5%. But really, it's, a, it's growing. And that's like, uh, it's really promising. Uh, I'm also really uh, hopeful based on veteran conversations and police conversations. Honestly, uh, it's going to shift the war against drugs away from drugs, hopefully. Um, yeah, just by normalizing that conversation. Groups like LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, are really going to, um, I think, be great collaborators in the future. Sure. And Psychedelics Today, no doubt, had a great part in helping to drive that conversation into the mainstream, right? I've been a fan of yours for a couple years now. Yeah, so let's jump into the elephant in the psychedelic medicine and assisted therapy room right now, which is that 
there's this disconnect between a lot of the policy and a lot of the industry that's getting rolled out into the world and the educational component that's lagging behind it. I come from a background in education, both in higher ed with collaborating with various universities on their media programs and also as a high school teacher. And it used to baffle me that there's no comprehensive educational paradigm for drugs post dare in a lot of ways right and i know that this is something that you've been working diligently to address you've got a number of different online education courses that you've rolled out the most recent of which is vital which we're here to talk about today so can one of you or both of you give me the extended elevator pitch for vital you know not the full everything obviously but like let's pretend we're going to the top of the burj khalifa here and we've got you know a couple minutes to give the elevator pitch what is vital why should people consider checking it out and who's an ideal person for going through the vital program yeah vital is our 12 month uh psychedelic training program a certificate in psychedelic therapies and integration um, and i really like to say that we're really trying to develop competencies and literacies within professional fields um so we can go out there and be advocates educators and leaders in our communities um and so you know part of that is becoming a psychedelic informed practitioner of some sense right like i think if <clears throat> we are going to move forward we're we're going to need to challenge a lot of the stigma and the taboo um, around these substances and really provide education and, you know, having our students go out there, being more informed, helping to educate their communities, helping to um, educate their clients that they're working with, you know, that that's going to help um, to kind of make a shift. And, and that's really part of our goal here um, at Psychedelics Today is to create psychedelic informed practitioners that can go out into their communities and inform their communities, educate um, and, you know, help help their clients. You know, a lot of clients are probably coming in and saying, hey, like I just discovered microdosing or psilocybin i don't know where to start and a lot of uh, practitioners are also lost you know this is totally new for a lot of people i think we're probably in our, our little psychedelic bubble but for a lot of people it's like i don't even know how to talk about this with with anybody um so really trying to lay down um those vital elements and, and foundations so people can really build their their competency and literacy uh, around this work and we wanted to be really inclusive. So we created this program because we saw limitations and, and some things we wanted to see different out of uh, programs like CIIS and MAPS. We thought that we could add in a lot of really interesting content that could really make better facilitators. So we wanted to try our hand at it. And you know, we saw, we saw a lot of success in the last year. So the other big win is, does everybody really need to be a therapist to do this work? Therapy as a licensed profession is somewhat uh, new, uh, but humans have been at this for many thousands of years. So shouldn't we try <laughs> to do this? And, you know, the, the licensure is a really big gateway to, um, or sorry, wall in the way of access for many, not only to be facilitators, but a license makes it expensive, um, which is why I'm really excited about Oregon having a really low um, kind of educational bar like you don't need a bachelor's, you need a GED equivalent to go forward in Oregon. And I, I find that really democratic and helpful and hopeful, but I also want to really support the underground. I was just going to ask you about that. So if I'm a high school student or a university student and I'm trying to position myself ahead of the curve for this mainstream medical model of psychedelics, right? For your money, what are some of the areas that I should be focusing on if I'm genuinely serious about getting involved in this emergent psychedelic industry? What are some of the overlooked areas or the, or the niche areas that people can be focusing on and doubling down on to best position themselves, in your opinion, for this forthcoming 
psychedelic medical model. I'll start, Kyle, and you can correct me. Uh, so I think somatic psychology is a big one. Trauma-informed approaches are really big, too. Getting a really good historical understanding of the traditions is really important. Um, you know, not only indigenous traditions, but the early traditions in the West. So our tradition comes from Soviet Prague, occupied Prague, right? So our, our tradition was also colonized just by the Soviets. But, um, you know, it's, it's a fascinating history. And what do, we, what do we want to do with this? And understanding the body, understanding trauma, understanding the history, understanding harm reduction. So getting as much harm reduction education as possible is good. And uh, getting some good flights under your belt, you know, figuring out how to do it safely. Holotropic breathwork and similar methods are a really good landing spot to start with. Mikhail, what else we got there? Yeah. Um, yeah, you bring up like a good point about like the license. And, you know, if you asked me, you know, five years ago, I would say that's the only route to go down. Um, you know, we're seeing people get involved in lots of different areas. And now that you have um, state like Oregon, which is opening up to people that don't carry a professional license. I mean, you will have a state state license. You will have to go through a training program um, and need to get a state license to become a facilitator. But it, it really opens uh, the doorway there. And so, you know, the landscape's changing. Um, and, you know, P we've seen our students get into many different roles whether that is going and actually getting a job or volunteering at retreat centers to be able to uh, do some um, guided facilitation. Um, people are getting into the education space, um, just working in psychedelic companies. Um, so I always say, you know, there's a niche for everything and really figure out what you want to do. Um, you know, Joe and I are always, you know, looking for different uh, people to hire. It's like, oh, wait, we need like, you know, it'd be nice to have a psychedelic informed, um, you know, law practice right which you know i think we, we we have some of that but it's like psychedelic visual artists psychedelic like people that want to do admin work it's like people that understand the language where we're not having to like teach them about the industry and so um really my my advice is again like building that competency and literacy so they can go out with your own skill you don't need to be a therapist to get involved in this work anymore um you know i didn't think we would start a podcast and have an education platform i went down the therapy route um and ironically i've put a on my therapy practice to do education and, and, and run this company um, with Joe. So, um, you know, lots of different ways to, to get involved now. It doesn't need to just be streamlined to the guided facilitation. Maybe if you're in, you know, one of these um, states that just legalized, um, you know, you could probably work your way towards uh, growing, right? Um, there's lots of different, you know, there's a, in um, Oregon, there's going to be like the service centers, you know, you could be an operator there, you could be a facilitator, or you could be on the grow end if, you, if you're really interested in, in, in growing mushrooms and, and getting a license that way. So things are rapidly evolving. And, um, you know, it's definitely changed. So there's opportunities everywhere. Now, it's not just the clinical and medical world. Sure. And you just touched on this a little bit, Kyle, but maybe we can punch in on it a little bit. What are some of the tangible outcomes for people who have gone through some of your Psychedelics Today programs, including the VITAL program? What are, what are people looking to get out of it? And, and what are some of the real world examples of graduates of your programs who are out there doing work in the emergent psychedelic industry? Yeah, it really depends on, um, you know, I, we just wrapped up with a retreat and it was hearing some of our uh, students, you know, tell me why they signed up for the program. Um, some people really just wanted their own kind of personal development work, professional development. They just um, took VITAL because they wanted to continue their education. 
Um, other people signed up because they actually just wanted a sense of community. They wanted to find like-minded folks to talk about this, learn together. Um, and then some of the more practical things, we've had uh, some students, again, um, you know, volunteer at retreat centers um, to be able to actually apply some of their, their uh, wisdom and, and their education in, in facilitation. We've had people start coaching and uh, therapy practices that include psychedelic integration and, and harm reduction practices. We've had people um, move into doing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy work. So for those that are licensed, um, that's a way to get involved and add uh, ketamine to, to a practice. Um, other people are, are applying to jobs, you know, psychedelic companies that are, um, you know, are, are hiring, right? And so they're they're using their skill set to go in and, and work for a company that's, um, you know, is psychedelic related. Um, and again, so some of those positions aren't clinical or medically oriented. Um, it's a skill that, you know, somebody that's been in the business world, um, they're able to like, again, have that education and then, and then go, go get a job at a psychedelic company. Um, so it's, 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 it's really vast on the way people are, are starting to, um, you know, implement what they're learning in this program and, and really how, yeah, just different, um, what, what they're, how they want to bring that out into the world, depending on their skills and training. Sure. You got anything to add, Joe? I just want to reiterate that there's just so much potential here. We've seen people get into grad school. We've seen people get jobs. We've seen all sorts of things. Seen people heal intergenerational trauma in their family just by taking a training. It was never our intent. Like our, our uh, Navigating Psychedelics 47-hour program, that has been extraordinarily helpful for folks just trying to understand where to go first or second, you know. Without any grounding, you just listen to a couple podcasts and you're like, oh, I guess I need four PhDs before I get started. The answer is no, this is a pretty human thing. And um, you can get started pretty affordably. Yeah, you know, and I got I to gotta spouse a little bit about how I ended up doing the satire because a lot of people see me as doing satire and like, you know, making psychedelics funny, if you will. And a large part of that came as a response to popular demand because I was doing this podcast. I was interviewing all these people, right? People introduce you to other people. You reach out. All of a sudden, you've got these very visible figures on the podcast. Kyle was one of the earlier guests who definitely had a platform. And then maybe like 50 interviews in, I was like, wow, everybody takes themselves so seriously here, right? Like everybody's like, and, uh, yeah. and then so I made that one real one day. And all of a sudden, I realized there was an untapped niche here. And uh, next thing you know, I'm getting invited to conferences with press passes. And people think I work for Psychedelic Alpha and are asking me financial questions. And I'm like, <laughs> do, I, do I tell this person how I ended up here? Probably not. I should just ride this. Just go with it, right? So, <laughs> and uh, it's fun. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you started following it because the, the field needs it. Like your your videos have cracked me up over the years, Come, bro. Like, just laughing out loud. Yeah, um, that's right. No, I yeah. just think it. You know, it's really important to have some levity in the conversation because there are so many tense conversations, controversial topics that are bubbling up to the surface because psychedelics are so intersectional, right? It encompasses such a broad array of culture and human history and and where we're going together. I still don't know. But that's what I wanted to ask you a little bit about next is uh, about all of this hype and hoopla surrounding psychedelic medicines and psychedelic cultures, right? When you started six years ago, there certainly wasn't this same abundance of conversation. There wasn't 5% of the conversations in Starbucks weren't about psychedelics, right? Uh, it was still very like, you know, people were very hesitant, very cautious. I myself, as a longstanding psychonaut, I did not feel comfortable speaking publicly about my relationship to psychedelics. Even in 2018, I just didn't feel like I had the bandwidth or, or the path I was on for that. A lot of that changed over the subsequent years. But I'm curious, 
uh, in your observations, you know, all these changes you've seen, all of this hype, all of the marketing, is there anything that you think needs to chill out right now around the psychedelic renaissance? Or do you think it's all good news, right? And, uh, you know, many people have different opinions on this, but like, there's a lot that's going on. There's a lot of people targeting ads on Instagram. There's a lot of people, you know, uh, confidently proclaiming that, you know, one session at their ketamine clinic is going to be like 10,000 hours of therapy, et cetera, et cetera. Just be curious to hear from, from your mentality, having been around this scene, this space, this industry for so long, what are some of the things, if any, that maybe we could tone down as a collective regarding psychedelics? I want to start with um, the things that are most important to me. Uh, first and foremost is we need to go easier on the planet. Um, we can't fly all of America to Peru to drink all of the ayahuasca, right? That's, you know, bad for the climate. It's not great for Peru. We need to really carefully consider tourism around drugs and psychedelics. Um, doesn't matter if you call it medicine or not, same shit. So another thing is uh, using things that are going endangered and or animals. We have a long history as a species of using animals as medicine and it never goes well. They usually go away. Right now, um, Mike Tyson just beating on the drum of 5-MeO-DMT from the toad, that's probably putting the toad on the fast track to extinction. So we've got to really, if at all possible, not do it. Um, the only exception I found is if you have a sincere religious interest, but you have to really sit with that to know if you do or not. It's not just like, oh yeah, cool, I saw that shit on TV, let's do it. And then peyote, like we're... And we're doing the same thing with iboga as well, but with peyote, the tribes that have been using this for a long time don't have access anymore. And Native American church, this is their thing. And we need to respect the hell out of the Native American church as Americans. Um, no doubt here, we need to just not be using peyote um, as white folks for the most part. You know, again, the sincere religious interest. I have very strong concerns about combros. Uh, <laughs> dishing out combo. I'm like just really concerned about that species. Um, and then the same shit in Iboga, like uh, Gabon is, is running out. They've made special laws based on how popular it is now. Um, so I just, you know, concerns left and right around the ecological footprint. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I think we really need to unify and figure out a way to stop fighting as much and work on ending the drug war. Drug war is our number one enemy. You know, the person that does it different in California because you do it a different way in New York, that's not your enemy. The DEA and the drug war is your enemy. And we need to figure out how to end the drug war so people can stop dying from contaminated supply and we can start building. And, you know, families are getting ruined for generations here as a result of the drug war. So that's that's some of my stuff. But Kyle, what do you, you want to mention? I mean, I would definitely echo a lot of that, right? I feel like, um, you know, one of the things that, that we really try to focus on at Psychedelics Today is, you know, the, Psychedelics Today, right? We talk about psychedelics, but we're also very drug war oriented. And I think sometimes that surprises people um, where we'll have these other conversations outside of psychedelics and kind of like um, what we would call that psychedelic exceptionalism, where it's all about that. But it's like, no, like, you know, this drug war is affecting so many people. And we need to also look outside of like, like what we classify as quote unquote medicine or, you know, drugs or, or whatnot. Um, some of the things like, uh, you know, being a therapist, hearing from clients, um, I, 
I, I get really worried about the Wild West um, of underground psychedelic practitioners selling this like one dose cure to a lot of people. Um, I've had a lot of people come having really kind of traumatic psychedelic experiences um, and really trying to figure out like what happened there. Um, just like not having really great supports with these underground sessions and just feeling like they've completely failed because the narrative is so focused on this like one time cure. And I think we really need to, um, you know, be more honest. And I think a lot of people that are getting into this space and, you know, this was me years ago right so it's just taken a long time to sit with a lot of the nuances and, and mature with it where it's like w as new people are getting involved they're in that like honeymoon phase and you go oh whoa like this is amazing i need to share it with the world um and again i was there too and you know maybe as you 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 get involved in it longer you start becoming a little bit more i don't know hesitant towards towards stuff or you know just a little bit more critical thinking um and you know i think for people's safety. We just need to be really honest um, about, you know, the potential experiences that, that can arise. And um, so we're not selling kind of false hope because what happens when that goes wrong with somebody? Um, you know, people are really, really struggling. They're, we're dealing with a lot of vulnerability here. Um, and, you know, even just with the research and, and, and biotech companies too, like kind of selling it this way, like we're dealing with very vulnerable people that are in sometimes the, the, this is their last ditch effort to heal. Um, and when they don't get that, that is really devastating. Um, and so again, just being more honest, more nuanced here, instead of just kind of like dealing with a lot of the fluff. Have to be science educators at the same time. Like how do we actually discuss a clinical trials results with somebody and be honest about it? Oh, like based on the data, 67% of the people, you know, no longer score is XYZ. We have to be really clear about what that means. It doesn't mean it's a yes, you win. There's still a chance here. Yeah, you know, a lot of what you just said, Kyle, I can empathize with because I'm very grateful that social media did not exist when I was in my honeymoon phase with psychedelics, right? I remember coming hot out the gate, being an evangelist and wanting everybody to take a macro dose of mushrooms. And then I had that environment going to school in San Francisco where I got to see a lot of unstructured psychedelic use, both, you know, coming out of my own camp and with friends. And I realized pretty quickly, like, it's not necessarily just a blanket good idea for everybody to be tripping all the time. And that's sort of the way these headlines make it seem, right? Is that like they're unilaterally beneficial and like you take this, it'll cure depression. And of course, if you go deeper in, you do your due diligence, you'll probably see it's more nuanced than that. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people just kind of look for the attention grabbing headlines. And there's a lot of platforms and companies that are going to exploit that and going to say, absolutely, I'm going to target these ads or I'm going to make these claims, et cetera. So it's something that I've been trying to do my my bit on, which is educating that there's also a, a potentially disastrous side to psychedelics, right? I do believe they're very safe if used in the right environments with the proper care, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I've seen plenty of people use them outside of those contexts and environments, and it's probably something we need to talk about so we don't get more headlines about people assaulting flight attendants because they're tripping balls on a plane or whatever. These things happen, right? And it, it's just kind of uh, anathema to sweep it under the rug, in my opinion. So let's let's talk a little bit about policy, because that's something I follow your lead on a lot. You know, I try to pick and choose from different people who have been around for a while and give pretty cogent analysis of their thoughts and feelings related to different votes and policy, et cetera. And I had a lot of people, as I'm sure you did too, that I knew who were on both sides of Prop 122 in Colorado, right? And I had people even 
approached me to fly me out there to mediate a conversation between these two different sides. And I said, I'm, I'm not from Colorado. I'm not even sure that makes sense to have me there. But, you know, I've come to believe that regulation and standardization can actually be very positive. It's not just, you know, what people would have you believe as being like the corporatocracy has taken over psychedelics. I advocate for keeping an open mind and for not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think that there's a lot of people who are going to benefit from this. But I'd be curious to hear some of your takes about moving forward, both with Oregon rolling out the psilocybin services program on January 1st, which I'm going to host John Dennis on the 3rd. So he's going to break that down for us more. And then uh, and then also Colorado. What are your general feelings about this regulation and legalization of psychedelics as a mainstream accessible medical? as a mainstream medicine for a lot of people. I love the scrubbing of the accessible word. So in Oregon, you know, it's the first time anybody's ever done this. So they're not going to get it right. Um, and, you know, just the first time we have to continually improve. So there, that's a whole nuanced conversation there. But people will have a sort of access and there is some access uh, clauses built into their bill, I believe. Um, you know, we're building our training program out there, hopefully Hopefully it'll be for sale soon, um, but it'll be the most affordable training program out there. And that was our goal the whole time. So, you know, it's amazing how critical folks are of such a radical thing. You know, the fact that in Oregon, two, three years ago, you could go to prison for simple possession of mushrooms. Now you can have it be a career. What a dramatic shift. Um, you know, the rife with issues and you get into Oregon with John. But in Colorado, I find this brilliant. We're, we're now able to possess and carry psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, ibogaine, and a police officer can catch us with this stuff and not legally be allowed to take it from us. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful we get to actually sue some police departments about this. Um, I think that'll be amazing. And I, I had friends personally that are not going to prison as a result of this bill um, going through. Amazing. Should we be putting people in prison for psychedelics and or any drugs? No, not at all. So anything that moves us in that direction, I believe, is positive. Um, and laws are mutable. You can always change laws. Yes, it's obnoxious. Yes, it takes a lot of organization and effort, but you can always do it and improve stuff. But what happens in Colorado is they have a huge cast of characters that will be bringing this stuff into a legal frame within two years. And I, I find that fascinating. And, you know, Dennis, you made some... You made a point earlier about, you know, maybe standards are important. Yeah, yeah. Imagine if you knew how much psilocybin you're consuming every time, or you could actually guarantee that your LSD was 100 micrograms. Um, for what it's worth, when one of the lead uh, pro, uh, organizers for Prop 122 called me to let me know this was finally happening, which is a little obnoxious, it was a little late in the game, I first thing I said was, cool, but where's LSD? You know, this is very like plant focused, which I find kind of obnoxious because I come from an LSD tradition, not a plant tradition. So, you know, I, I felt a little excluded and snubbed. But anyway, we're working on that. We're going to figure it out. LSD will probably be prescribable in the near future anyway. So, you know, the theoretical possession penalties will be much lower as a result. But I, I just want people to understand that laws can change. Citizens can have an effect on laws. Yes, money made this Colorado thing happen. Out-of-state money made this thing happen. But it was philanthropic dollars. If philanthropists wanted to make more money, this is a Bielabate line, by the way, there's much better ways to make a lot of money than going into a psychedelic legalization effort at a state level 
you know, like Compass and etc. can't play in this game. There's federal laws in place that, that you know, push them out. So big players, big money players, they're not going to make a killing here in Colorado. People will do okay, but it's not like uh, we're going to have a psychedelic Elon Musk running around Colorado soon. You know, it's not going to happen. But that, that's my Colorado rant. You know, I, I think a lot of people are concerned around it kind of taking the course that cannabis did. And, you know, there's some good argument there, right? Around like all these rich white people are going to probably make lots of money while lower class people are going to, you know, continue to stay in jail, just like those that have been arrested with cannabis. Um, we're still serving penalties. And, um, you know, again, laws aren't perfect. And as this moves forward, it's not going to be perfect. But I keep coming back to kind of um, what Joe and I have been saying, like, if it helps to defeat the drug war, then I think that's a win. And we're not going to be able to like figure out with like one go around and it may not be ideal, but if people aren't getting arrested and their lives taken away from them, even professionals, like we know professionals that have like lost their license or they're dealing with like, you know, felony charges because they're, they're wanting to engage in this healing work for themselves or with clients. And, um, you know, if, if, if a bill passes that can really kind of just, you know, take the drug war down one step even if it's just on the state level it's not on the federal level like again these small local adjustments i think are gonna um, have a bigger impact um, down the line for kind of national reform and i think we're kind of getting close with cannabis right i think we're, we're hopefully on the verge of some sort of national reform where they where they reschedule um so yeah, like, you know, I, I've heard a lot of like opposition around some of the things, most of it's around like accessibility, quality, and again, it's, it's not going to be perfect, but um, Joe, like you, you mentioned just around like, um, you know, standard dosing, like I was just having a, a conversation with somebody recently just around like homemade edibles versus store-bought edibles. I would love... I love buying store bar edibles because I know what I'm getting. Like that person that just made a brownie and said, here you go. Like I am terrified of those. I never know what the dose is. I like get overly high when I do that. And I take like the smallest amount and it's like nice to be able to go someplace and be like, oh, I know what I'm getting. I know how to properly dose this. And that's going to have, I think, uh, you know, there are people that are, that are going to buy and, and overdo it. But at least, you know, if you're informed around dosing, like, you know, you're going to probably make a, a better informed um, choice there. Um, and, you know, I think having safe supply is important. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know how true this is, but a friend, like one of my friends, most of his, um, like friend group has has died from like uh, overdoses, <clears throat> mostly probably due to uh, contaminated fentanyl supplies. And, um, you know, my somebody just mentioned oh you know that one person that didn't probably because he actually had a legal prescription he wasn't going into the underground market and dealing with contaminated drug sources had a legal prescription and it's that hit me i said holy shit like i didn't even think about that like i'm sure you know this person probably did some stuff in in you know grabbing underground stuff but for the majority of it he, he you know legally prescribed um and you know didn't uh, you know, didn't, didn't, uh, you know, have the same faith as, as most of his other friends. And, and so that was like, 
that's the importance of a safe supply. Um, and if we can get towards that, how many lives would be saved? I mean, the amount of funerals that I've been to, and again, you know, we're not talking about psychedelics, we're talking about other drugs, is just ridiculous for drug overdoses. Um, and, you know, it's scary now, you know, people, you know, fentanyl and, and stuff showing up in other drugs like cocaine and, you know, people that like aren't going to think that they're going to die from a fentanyl overdose. And, and, and that happens, right? Um, Dan Safe put out like a PSA number years ago with Albert Hoffman blotter paper in, in Canada. You know, any teenager seeing that who's not doing any sort of drug testing, that was it was just a, a, a big blotter sheet with carfentanil on it. If I saw that, I'd be like, that's probably some good acid. Uh, Albert Hoffman Bicycle Day paper. Um, but, you know, it's, it's it, as, as Mitch Gomez, uh, Gomez of, of Dance Safe said, it's a different era of drug use. You know, thing, fentanyl and all these other chemicals are just showing up in drugs that don't make any sense. And to have a safe supply and, you know, if regulation comes in and moves us towards that, I don't know. I, I ultimately think that, that that is a positive thing, even though the economics and, uh, you know, all that stuff is a little uh, complicated and, and a lot of opinions. But I, I think ultimately, if it goes towards saving lives and, you know, safer, safer use, I'm all for it. One last interjection around safety. What's going to happen in Colorado is the secrecy is going to start decreasing. So we had some uh, friends in California greatly harmed by a, a famous cult there, a uh, psychedelic cult, and um, that only could happen because of prohibition. Um, they could, in one foul swoop, take your friends, family, sacrament, and community away. And now, with the lack of you know prohibition in Colorado, prohibition decreasing in Colorado, secrecy will become lesser and it's going to be more okay to go to the cops yeah part of the reason i launched this podcast was i felt that i had a body of experience with psychedelics and a lot of good connections as well as the know-how to produce a podcast and i realized that there should be more transparency there should be more people breaking down issues and discussing things and helping to, to filter signal from noise because i think one of the things with the arrival of social media everyone's got a platform and now this hoopla of psychedelics is everyone's an expert all of a sudden and you've got you know any number of different viewpoints that you have to filter through and a lot of times you don't have the bandwidth to analyze everything so you got to go find thought leaders so when i see these policy decisions coming up and votes i often will go to psychedelics today and download the podcast if i see that you guys are talking about it so it can help frame my thinking right and then you just kind of pick and choose from different thought leaders and ultimately arrive at you know how you're going to make sense of this whole thing and one note i wanted to mention about uh, standardized safe supply is that lack of a standardized safe supply is largely what drove me towards being an aficionado for mushrooms specifically as I knew my source I knew the cultivator I knew the grower and I had a couple of experiences with LSD with ketamine with a few other substances when I was going to school in San Francisco that were just wildly different the potency the quality I remember my first time taking LSD it was on cardboard and I don't even remember where I got it it was just like hey somebody had LSD Years later, I took a half a dose instead. You know, I took three hits that first time. Didn't have a great night. I took a half a dose of some really pure LSD. Had a wondrous, wonderful experience, right? And it, it always kind of scared me away from the underground market when I had had a number of experiences essentially sourcing something that I didn't really know what it was, right? Same thing with DMT. I had some really good, really pure DMT one time. Next time, zero effects. So I'm an advocate for people being able to get a reliable standardized dose that they know is safe, that they know is powerful 
and and preferably having some transparency built into that for all parties involved. That's just my take on it. Yeah, yeah, totally. If um if anybody's listening that just wants to, like a little sample, you know, this is a self-selected sample, but um if you go to drugsdata.org, you can uh go through that archive and see what samples are being um tested there. And you know, we 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 do present that website like in a lot of our classes just to show People are able to um, submit a drugs, uh, some drugs to them. I think it's like $100. They do a high-level readout, and then they post it um, publicly online. So you could go on drugsdata.org, type in LSD, and see all the blotter um, that's been tested. And again, you know, this is kind of self-selected for people that, that paid that money to, to get that tested. But it's really eye-opening when you go in there, especially like when you search like MDMA, you look at like ecstasy tablets, right? And it's like people are like, oh, I like that, that Punisher tablet. It's always consistent. And, and you look, it's the same tablet, different dose, different makeup. Sometimes it's amphetamine. Sometimes it's like this and that. Um, and so, you know, if you're interested to just kind of get a sample of like how contaminated the underground market could be, um, you know, just just kind of peruse around in there. I, I have noticed sometimes over the years it does get better. Other time, other years are worse. But um, it's just really interesting to look at and, and go, OK, this is, you know, a small sample of what the market is. Um, Sure. And shout out Dance Safe. Shout out everybody out there testing drugs and doing the Lord's work for us. So I'm going to let you both go after this last question. But before we before we let you go today, I would love to hear about what's on the horizon for 2023 with psychedelics today. I know that you've got a conference coming up, your first conference, I believe. There's tons happening. You're positioned very well. It's a it's a great time to be here now. What are you looking forward to in 2023 and what can we look forward to coming out of the psychedelics today camp? We've got our first ever conference, like you said, Convergence in Los Angeles, March 30 through April 2. It's going to be something approaching conference meets festival. It's going to be a really uh, great amount of art, beautiful places to make community, have some interesting experiences, and nightlife is integrated. We're going to have really cool folks there on site um, performing for us in the evening once uh, all the presentations and uh, panels have wrapped up. It's going to be so fun. Four days of that. Really excited about that. Really excited about Maps Denver coming up. I, that's going to be a, a hometown affair for me. Yeah, uh, we'll try to throw a party and we'll see. We'll see what we can pull off. Um, and yeah, lots of retreats um, coming up. Vitals coming up. Uh, we've got ambitions to do all sorts of smaller events all over the country. So stay tuned for that. We haven't really come up with a good plan yet. So. I just know that I want to do it and it would be of service to the community. And um, I just think we need to do it. Yeah. Kyle, what else do we have going? I mean, I was just going to mention our, our vital cohort again. Um, we're launching a new cohort in April 2023. And so we're going to be putting on um, some breathwork retreats for that, which is going to be awesome. We just wrapped up. Well, after we're done with this cohort, we would have done six retreats. Um, and then so we'll probably have a bunch more retreats planned for, for next year. Um, and yeah, the conference and a lot more education offerings. And yeah, it's, it's going to be exciting. That's for sure. Well, thank you both very much. Joe Moore, Kyle Bowler, founders of Psychedelics Today, for popping by the Mycopreneur podcast. It's been a pleasure. I'm a big fan of both of you gentlemen. Thank you again. Likewise. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms 
that I'm currently active on. At Micropreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micropreneur Podcast.